0: the Israeli cricket team had a surprisingly large impact on the 1979 World Cup. In fact, just by kind of existing and not being all that good at the game, they might have slightly changed the future of cricket. And this all comes down to the fact that in 1975, teams were chosen for the event. That included East Africa, which was a few different nations wedged together, and also Sri Lanka. That really bothered the Netherlands and Denmark, who believed that they were better than those two sides. So in 1979, there was a qualification tournament. For Sri Lanka, their journey began with a victory against the USA. But in their second game, it was actually washed out against Wales. Their third game was against the Netherlands, who by this point, Sri Lanka had kind of proved they were a better team than, and they won that game. That meant that they were holding two wins and a washout match as they approached their final group match. But then something very weird happened from an unexpected source, Israel. You see, political tensions became a bit of a big deal, and the Sri Lankan government forbid their team to play against Israel. This forfeiture triggered debates about whether they should be in the qualification tournament at all, and whether they should play in future events. And remember, Sri Lanka had no power within cricket at this stage. They were not a big nation. They were barely in the first World Cup at all. It would have been very easy for the ICC to make a decision along the lines of, if you're not going to play in our qualifying tournament, why would we even let you go to the main tournament, let alone continue to come back to future qualifying events? However, the ICC eventually decided that Sri Lanka would be allowed to continue. Still, challenges remain. Sri Lanka, Wales and USA actually stood with equal points. But luckily for Sri Lanka, they had a superior net run rate. But because of all this, it meant that in those semi-finals, Sri Lanka was playing Denmark and not one of the poorer teams. It might sound silly now, but this put a lot of pressure on the Sri Lankans because this was a proper side. Oli Mortensen, the Danish county bowler, was part of it, and he bowled very, very well in that game. But while the Danish team was very strong, there was no doubt that Sri Lanka were better all around. So they won that game, qualified, and also won the entire qualification tournament. This, of course, is where one of the biggest what-ifs in cricket history comes from, because what would have happened had Sri Lanka not qualified for the 1979 World Cup, if the ICC had decided to suspend them, or just they didn't have a good enough net run rate and they didn't make it through to the next part of the tournament? I mean, that's just a question we cannot answer. However, at that point, it was quite clear that Denmark were not that much worse than Sri Lanka. They had county pros and a good local league. They were a strong country and really should have qualified for that World Cup as well. They were arguably the second best team in that tournament. When they didn't qualify for that tournament, their cricket faded away, and few now actually remember how good they were. So would that have happened to Sri Lankan cricket? We don't know. But who on earth would have thought that the 1979 qualification tournament for the World Cup would involve Israel, Denmark, Sri Lanka, and a boycott? It's got to be one of the craziest qualification tournaments we've ever had, and it's almost never mentioned today. Welcome to Double Century, the podcast about the history of cricket. This season, we are celebrating the World Cup, cricket's first foray into modern sport thinking. We'll have an episode on every tournament so far, and this one, we go back to 1979. The qualification tournament was actually, in many ways, slightly more interesting than the actual World Cup itself. There were many issues going on with cricket at that time, including the fact that the whole thing was played under the cloud of Kerry Packer's World Series cricket. But in truth, the games just weren't as good. You could argue that only a few games really stood out, and Sri Lanka's first win was certainly one. In the third game of that tournament, they came up against India. The Sri Lanka top order was incredibly strong. They had Roy Dias, of Wedemi, and Dilip Mendes, all making 50s. The other two pushed the ball around a little bit, but Mendes was brutal, scoring 64 from 57 balls with three sixes. That meant that Sri Lanka set India 239. But because of rain, the match didn't actually start until the next day. India got to 117 for two, meaning they needed 122 from their remaining 25 overs. They were slow, but they gave themselves plenty of chances. But that is also when Vishwanath ran himself out for 22. And then the leggy, Samachandra Da Silva, went through the middle order. And Tony Apata, who had struggled with the new ball, swept through the tail. This was the first associate team win at a World Cup. And it was essentially one of the largest reasons why Sri Lanka would get test status. And let's be honest, all of these things are a reason why Sri Lanka won a World Cup so soon. There was a classic match played between Pakistan and England in this tournament as well. Both teams had actually already qualified for the next round, so it was really more about bragging rights than anything else, but it was a hell of a contest. The game was at Headingley and the wicket was terrible. Majid Khan was all over the English. Jeffrey Boycott and Graham Gooch each had strike rates in their 30s from their very long innings. It was the latter who top scored with 33 in the kind of innings that never really started and always looked like it should be always over. That meant that Pakistan needed 166 from their 60 overs. They were 34 for six. Mike Hendrick was a line and length machine. He was a hit the seam bowler with mechanical precision. Once he found the right line and length on a wicket, you had trouble. And this pitch was made for him. His 12 overs, he took four for 15. And at that stage, the game should have been over. But Pakistan captain Asif Iqbal was made for this kind of game. He was disciplined, loved to leave, and played attacking shots well within himself. The kind of player perfect for a low chase on a tricky wicket. He matched up with the tail, and they edged towards the total. Then Mike Brearley brought on Bob Willis, put himself at slip, and Iqbal got an unplayable lifter that took his glove and found the captain. But Pakistan still had Wasim Barry and Imran Khan at the crease. England also had a problem in that they had run out of seam bowling. And with Imran Khan at the wicket, they didn't want to see him attacking one of their spinners. So Brearley asked Jeff Boycott and Graham Gooch to bowl swingers. Incredibly, this worked. And Boycott took Barry and then also the last wicket. So England had won a World Cup match with Jeffrey Boycott bowling dirty slow swing by only 15 runs. And in the semi-final, Boycott was back in action again. But luckily, that started with the bat. Sadly for him, Richard Hadley got him out early on. In fact, without wanting to get all Ilford's second 11 on you, Hadley bowled his 12 overs for 32 runs and the wicket of boycott. But it was Mike Brearley with 115 ball 53 and Graham Gooch, who knocked up 71 from 84 with three sixes that got England to 221 with some late innings hitting from Derek Randall. New Zealand were quite clearly not a major team at this point and so no one was really expecting them to be in the semi-final. But as John Wright and Bruce Edgar got to 47 from the first 16 overs, you would have to argue that New Zealand were in front in this game. But then they lost Edgar, and soon after, Boycott was back bowling. This time, it was with his more preferred off-spin. Unfortunately for New Zealand, Jeff Howarth missed a full toss while he was trying to sweep, but the Kiwis were still fine with Wright at the crease, until he was run out by great work from Randall. And then there was another run-out after that, and suddenly now, New Zealand were well behind. Every time the Kiwis would get someone in and set, England would find a way to dismiss them. Jeremy Coney, Glenn Turner, Mark Burgess, Richard Hadley, Warren Lees, and Lance Cayennes all made it to double figures. But the consistency of the wickets kept them behind. But the one thing that was in New Zealand's favour was the fact that all of England's main bowlers seemed to be hurt finally after edging as close as possible new zealand needed 14 runs from the final over with a wicket in hand both of them was bowling and the tail couldn't get over the line and they lost by nine runs at this point england had not lost a game but they had been tested by pakistan and by new zealand west indies on the other hand had won all four of their matches fairly convincingly they had the two best batters in the tournament and a young monkey holding who no one could handle they were the odds-on favourite to win the final. Of course, one of those batters was Viv Richards, who would make a simply stunning hundred in the final, and yet I'm not going to talk about that innings at all because of what happened at the other end. If you have heard of the name Collis King, it is for this game, but chances are you will not have heard of him. He played nine tests and he averaged 32, and in his 18 ODIs, he averaged 23, but it better than a runner ball. Part of the reason he didn't play more was the decision to play as a rebel in apartheid South Africa. But in truth, he was always just on the fringes and mostly outside of a great team. At Lord's for the World Cup final, he came out with the score at 99 for 4. West Indies were not in trouble, but they certainly had to rebuild a little bit. Viv Richards was out in the middle, and Ian Botham was smoking. Viv told King to play himself in, and Collis said, "'I ain't gonna let Jeffrey get this man.' In the league, there would be no mercy. So why would this be any different? King's first ball from Botham, he cut it to the fence. The only thing that slowed him down was the lunch break in the middle of the innings. After that, he went completely off, including two sixes from Wayne Larkin in and over. Essentially, what happened was that England were in front, so they tried to force through their fifth bowler overs as they had all tournament. Yes, Graham Gooch and Geoffrey Boycott again, plus a couple from Larkin's as well. King destroyed them, taking the majority of his 10-4s and 3-6s from their less-than-frontline efforts. The cerebral genius of English captain Mike Brearley was so confused that he didn't bring back his full-time bowlers on quick enough, and by the time he did, King was flying. He blasted 86 from 66 balls, and allegedly he played only one mistimed shot in all of them, a top edge hook of both of them. Eventually, he would smash a ball to square leg from Phil Edmonds, and he would be out court. He and Viv added 139 runs in 77 minutes off Carnage. The remaining batters only contributed five of the last 48 runs as Richard unleashed his own barrage at the death. Viv later said, I scored 138, but it was Collis who came in and took charge. The West Indies ended with 286, a big score for anyone to chase in that era, but certainly in a World Cup final. Oh, and we should mention that the West Indies had some pretty decent bowlers as well, Andy Roberts. Colin Croft, and Michael Holding. Oh, and there's one other guy out there as well, Joel Garner. Perhaps, arguably, the greatest ODI bowler ever. England actually started with 129 opening run partnership. The problem was that Brearley and Boycott had strike rates of 49 and 54. It meant that everyone else had to come in and hit as the run rate had got massively out of hand. Gooch, who was great the entire tournament, looked like the player who could pull off an unlikely chase. But in the 48th over, Joel Garner came back on, and it was getting darker at this point. And the big man hadn't had one of the best days, but he was going to be bowling from above the sight screen with his six foot eight frame. And he went through Gooch and Gower in one over with Yorkers. England lost more wickets at the other end before Garner devoured the tail. He bowled Larkins and Chris Old for Ducks, and then had the keeper Bob Taylor caught behind. Joel Garner, in 11 balls, took five for four, and England lost their last eight wickets for 11 runs. The World Cup was over, and the West Indies had won the first two events. The West Indies, like what would happen generations later with T20, were used to playing limited overs cricket a lot and were also paid to do it, so they took it very seriously. That meant whether they were playing for Kerry Packer in the county game or in the leagues of England... Every time they played limited overs cricket, it was actually quite important to them. They essentially had perfected a method before anyone else had even really thought about it. I mean, Garner with his Yorkers, Richards with his strike rate, and King with his attack on the fifth bowlers. They were light years ahead of how the rest of cricket thought about ODIs at that time. In the first 20 years of one-day internationals, the West Indies won 72% of their matches. And that was even after the Rebel Tours destabilized their depth. Right up until 1998, they were still a fantastic one-day international team. And if you look back at their squads, they had the teams to win in 1983, 87, 92, and 96. But sadly, 1979 would be their last total. But they completely changed the way that limited overs cricket was played. And weirdly enough, who's the next team that would do that in one-day cricket? It's probably Sri Lanka in 1996, which was the last World Cup the West Indies were an ODI force. They won two titles, but their legacy is more than that because they took the game so seriously that other teams had to follow. Remember, in the 1970s, it was not a fate to complete that the World Cup would actually succeed. No one much cared for East Africa, Canada, or even Sri Lanka. Australia and England did not necessarily need the money. But in having one team as good as the West Indies, other teams were sometimes guilted or sometimes just bullied into getting better. And over the course of those first two World Cups, the West Indies did not lose a game. They were the first kings of ODI cricket. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version that you can get via Patreon, and there are many other extras involved with being a member over there. In fact, this show would not exist if Patreon members had not helped us at the beginning and continued to support us. Cricket history does not pay, so any help you can give will be massive and you'll find a link in the show notes to subscribe. Remember to please review, follow, tell your friends and family, and just people that you meet in parties about our show. All of that helps us grow. Double Century episodes are written by either Abhishek Mukherjee or myself, sometimes both of us. And I am Jared Kimber, and this is part of my podcast network. The podcasts are overseen by Nick McCorriston, who also edits and produces Double Century. And C.S. Chawanza is our man for social media clips. If you like the Double Century podcast, on top of subscribing and supporting us, there's actually way more content like this on the Jared Kimber YouTube page.